Now, Chloe, I'm going to start off with a statement. First of all, welcome to Dragon Diaries. Thank you. And to our ever-growing audience, which is international now, I want you to know. So who knows could be listening out there. If memory serves, you are, not only are you a milliner, but you are one of the top 20 British hat designers and you have got that award because of your ethical approach to production. So that's a fairly, <laughs> isn't it? Of course, you look a bit faint now. You I, <laughs> that's really I mean, what you are. Before you said that, I didn't know I was. But I think, yeah, I mean, there's not many people that do what I do because it is quite difficult. Um, making a hat is is a uh, intense process and you need lots of little bits and pieces and it's fine if you're making your own designs and you've got what you want surrounded by all these lovely things but if you do have a customer coming up to you and saying I want to have something to go with this frock and it's a very tricky colour to match and she wants it in certain materials they may have to wait a few months before I get those bits because everything is upcycled, essentially. Upcycling meaning taking something, breaking it down and making it into something else. And I essentially use waste products, things that people don't want anymore that really should be going in the bin. But I don't want them. I don't want them in landfill. I want to, to reuse them. And, I mean, that's a fairly hefty award isn't it I mean I put rather a statement yeah it um, is <laughs> and it's, it's slightly also I mean wonderful for you but slightly disappointing that it sounds like there's still not enough designers maybe using a, the ethical approach and I know for you that it, not only in what you do as a hat maker and the other things that you make but in your life generally, I mean, upcycling um, and recycling is, is very much your mantra. Would that be correct? Oh, absolutely. I think I've always had a passion for it. And I didn't really realise it until the business started going on and on. Because when I started, it was, um, it was a necessity for me because I was just using what I had at home. Um, yeah, let's go back, Chloe. I know that you came from quite an artistic background, I, I, and I think I know that your father, though, had a day job in being fairly high-powered in finance. Um, both your parents were very artistic, your mother more graphically, but your father, I believe you said, even as a young child, you remember, made these amazing mobiles? <laughs> yes. Mum and Dad both got hideously ill. They had pneumonia and were separated in two rooms. And whilst he was sort of recovering... He was obviously worrying about the future and what us daughters were going to do next schooling-wise. So he needed an extra pot of money for that. Uh, so he thought up this little mobile idea, which I think other people have made since, where you pull the string under their tummies and then they flap their wings. He could get the plywood. He bought a jigsaw. Um, Mum would sand and paint them. We would we would sand and paint them for pocket money as well. So basically, he'd work in the city Monday to Friday, weekends, they were making the birds. <laughs> and, uh, 
And it, yeah, it was great business. So moving forward, um, Chloe, with, with, with yourself, you now, you seem to have done so many things. <laughs> Um, but the, the one that really tickles me is you didn't immediately go to art school and pick up paintbrushes. Sometimes I don't think you went to art school at all, but you became an actress. Yeah. Tell me about becoming an actress. Did you go and train as an actress? I did. So it was the one place, I think, at school or at home where I felt completely comfortable. And I think it's being the youngest out of three daughters that was the place I could be heard and I in my last year at primary school I got the lead role as Joseph and Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat and we had to audition for it and I got the part hardcore (laughs) yeah it was a catholic school so oh yes I went to one of those (laughs) but I got the lead role and loved it and I thought oh this is this is my place I like this and I then auditioned. Joseph's not really the lead role. Surely Baby Jesus is the lead role. Uh, I'm not trying to burst your bubble. (laughs) Are you thinking of Jesus Christ Superstar? I don't know. What were you in? Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Ah, he was the lead. (laughs) Actually, I was thinking of the nativity. So, let's move forward with the acting. How did that go? I loved it. And I became a professional actor for about six years. Theatre was my bag, though. Loved going on the stage. Wasn't really very interested in telly. I did a bit, which is quite well paid. But it's an interesting... It's a completely different art form. It's a different form, form, yeah. Yeah, and I admire actors who can switch from theatre to film to telly. But, yeah, I loved theatre. I loved the process of rehearsal, the camaraderie you get from being in a team of people. I loved travelling around, being a bit of a free bird. Was this mainly... Am I right? This was mainly children's theatre? Yeah, mainly children's theatre. My um, selling point was that I look... I think I probably do still look far too young than I actually am, so I'm never treated like an adult. (laughs) Before we kind of get into to the near future let's just go back a bit so you had to sort of basically earn money what seemed to work best for me in between acting jobs was going through a temp so I started off working in retail and sold perfumes and posh handbags and things like that which I really enjoyed and then I got into doing admin or working on a building site. Well, this is what... <laughs> I'm a little bit gobsmacked. I'm, I'm going to say to the listeners, I had really hoped when I heard that you worked on a building site that you were, in fact, a brickie. But exactly. you disappointed me. No, I was just in the reception area. And then I worked for a textile designer, Bruno, a lovely chap. And I was his sales manager there. And so I got a little bit of insight in working with a designer in a small company, but it was also a luxury brand. So I was getting a feel for luxury and the sort of person that really likes that. I want to move it a little bit further forward now. So I'm I'm getting a really good picture now of uh, a person who's getting kind of some experience in, in different areas. And as you said, very pillar. I want to sort of drift towards now your, your design and where you are now with, with, with Chloe Hayward London. 
if I remember rightly, when we were having a cup of tea once, you said one of the things that sort of kicked off the whole process that then turned into the hat making was making fascinators. Yes, absolutely. Well, what kicked it off was that I was invited to five weddings in one year. And the first one was quite a posh one, and I had a really nice Bieber dress. Bieber obviously is a 70s designer, so any hat to go with that would then look like a costume. Um, so at the time, I think fascinators were sort of coming in to fashion. So I started making little fascinators because they would fit on my head. I also had um, a fringe that was growing out, so the fascinator oh, was quite yeah. good at, at keeping that fringe back with yeah. the comb. Good for roots as well. Really good for roots, yeah, yeah you cover yeah. up that bit there. And I just made them out of stuff I had at home. And after the first wedding, the first piece I made as well was two pieces of cinema and some wire and some beads and some feather butterflies. And it took me half an hour to put together with a lot of arm ache, because obviously you've got to try it on all the time with, oh, without course, it yeah. being sewn in place. So you're constantly <laughs> holding it with mirrors everywhere because yeah. it is a 3D sculpture in a, in a way. But yeah, people really liked that one. And, and they were sort of wondering where I'd bought it and at the time I think because I'd made it you sort of get a bit apologetic about these things and go, oh well I just threw it together <laughs> but Stevie's sort of Stevie's become quite strong with me and said you know you've got to say what this yeah. is at the time I was hat-tastic mm. this is a hat-tastic piece and here's my card um, where I got it from so that was your brand at that stage was hat-tastic okay. yeah hat-tastic because I was sort of slight I was doing it for a bit of pocket money those days you were kind of nonchalantly sort of regarding it as a hobby yeah but in the back of your head you were thinking that could have wings yeah in the business sense yeah I mean I'm I've always been quite open to criticism uh, and positivity and there was an awful lot of positivity about it and I was able to then list them online and sell them quite quickly I was beginning to feel that people understood the upcycling nature of them mm. and they quite liked that and the fact that they were made in England. So those two bits have really stayed with me throughout this whole journey, I'd say. But what I found being on just an ordinary marketplace where everything else is, you've got to know when you're online, you've got to know what your tag words mm. are on what people are looking for and if you just put fascinator mine weren't just blue fascinator mm. they were all sorts of different components which make it look like yeah. a bird or mm. what have you i mean your your um usp has always really been the ethical approach hasn't it and the yes. recycling so let's let's just step into the world of of hats then so at the moment we're still hat-tastic we're still a little bit frivolous we're still playing with the idea but we're now moving into a, to a bigger world and a more competitive world. Tell us a little bit how you made the transition then into hats. Yeah, so from making these fascinators and listing them online, I started to see that obviously there were more 
going on there as well because other people thought oh there's fascinators on there i'll make some and pop them on as well yeah. and the competition started yeah. growing and the market is getting more and more flooded by this stage isn't it craft basically yes. full stop yeah. yeah that's right and then the whole usp of me being sustainable is getting a bit lost because i was literally then going back to blue fascinator mm. scenario mm. so i needed to make it bigger in some way and I was talking to my middle sister Melissa who has a she has a history of fashion journalism and she said you need to apply for this fantastic uh, catwalk show in East London before Spitalfields is Spitalfields as it is now it really was a Spitalfields is that the meat market. Yes, that's what it was originally. And literally just around the corner from where our dad used to work. (laughs) But like an aircraft hangar in those days, there was nothing there and just full of stalls at the weekend. It was brilliant. Loads of up-and-coming designers. And Alternative Fashion Week was held every year and it was run by this lady who was... Um, she was something to do with art sponsorship and this was basically her calling card for people to know what she did and it brought press out it brought new up-and-coming designers and some really inventive ideas mainly clothing hats not so much so I sort of got on the top of the pile a bit and I was I was selected and it was free to do as well Mm. I just had to supply the collection. I could bring models if I wanted to. But they had, if I remember rightly, they had models there, didn't they? Yeah. So they had then young girls who'd had like a day trying out being a model. And then they got the experience to be on there. And they had makeup artists there as well, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, had makeup artists there and hairstylists. But I brought everything myself because with hats you need to have the right sure. thing <laughs> need to understand how the hat's going to sit so you literally took your own models did you yeah I had a few models and then and then I chose some on the day I sort of left it open just in case there was sickness or no sure. shows or whatever because everyone was doing it for the kindness of their own hearts you know and for experience mm. but I was placed on so it's Monday to Friday this whole thing and I was put on the Monday And that's when all the press were there. And I'd purposefully done a collection that was bright and colourful and spangly. It had a vintage look to it. I managed to borrow some clothes from a vintage shop (laughs) and styled it all myself. I had a lovely shoe company called Coco Rose London. They sponsored me some shoes for the girls to wear. And it was lovely because having come from a theatrical background, I wanted to put on a show that was fun and and a bit glamorous. Two things we missed out. First of all, how did you make a hat? How did you know how to make a hat from Fessa? And the other thing is you changed your name from Hattastic to Chloe Hayward London. And I know that was quite a deliberate choice. So could you fill in the gaps there for us? Yeah, so when I started making these bigger hats, I'm completely self-taught, so... From fascinator to hat. That's yeah. right. So that's why you're so calling from... a bigger hat, yeah, because yeah. fascinator's a hat, isn't it? Yeah, proper, 
proper hat. But uh, but now we're getting into the to the realms of um, a crown. Yeah, that's right. A proper hat. I suppose I still um, I wouldn't say I go into proper head sizes or anything like that. I still like. See, it's easier to sell if it's a hat that can be worn on any size head. And also give that freedom for the wearer to wear it the way they want. A lot of my hats I make, if stylists have ever borrowed them for shoots or whatever, most of the time they're put on back to front. I'm not quite sure why that is. But then that's fine if that looks great for the shoot. By the way, I should just say that that noise is... Um, well, I think Scary's dog and my dog just, just frankly having a chat. Do I remember you once telling me, Chloe, the, the crowns of the hats that you have made by a, a, a manufacturer or a designer down in Brighton, is that right? Yeah, lovely girl who has had lots of experience working with Philip Treacy. Um, she's actually a oh, shoe right. designer now, but she's really good at blocking hats. That's the process of basically pulling the straw over a, a wooden block with some glue um, pinning it and drying it and then sewing it in place, wiring it as well. Because she's had the proper training and she's done it all day for every day for seven years, it's worth my while to just send her all the materials and get her to do the actual... OK. I do my all the sculptural... the goes on mm. Yeah, and that's just a way, you know, if I do have a big order, I can just say, here you go, and then I can get on with the other stuff, and it's time management at the end of the day. So I was hat-tastic, and I had made my bigger hats, and I had, through various circles, found that I'd probably be uh, well-placed in Fenwick and Bond Street. And through process of elimination, I managed to find the buyer and uh, was happy enough to be in Fenwick for three seasons. And I was doing really well. I mean, considering I was having babies and I was trying to fit all this stuff in around family life. And then I love doing competitions as well. So I enter a lot of competitions and I have won awards. And this last award I won the gentleman that gave me the award said, why are you called Hattastic? <laughs> and I was honest with them and said, look, when I started out, I wanted to be a brand in itself. I didn't want anyone to know it was me necessarily. It was sort of like harking back to my acting days. Acting, you have to sell yourself. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sell the hats and say, Hattastic is the brand. And they were fun, they were creative, they were, you know, jokey hats. And he said, well, your hats aren't like that now. They're quite luxurious. You're a luxurious brand. Yeah, grown-up brand. They're elegant. And would, you, would it be fair to say that your hats reflect how you are now? And I said, well, yeah, obviously I love vintage. They're going in that sort of vein. And he said, well, you need to be the name of your brand which I recoiled in horror. And then the fear of, oh goodness, the branding, because I've got Hattastic trademarked and I'd have to do all my hat boxes again. And oh. so I, I came home a little shaken. <laughs> but not stirred. <laughs> well, I, I did think about it and I talked to Stevie about it. And he said, I've said all along it should be your name. <laughs> 
but you never listen. <laughs> so we are now grown up. We're making uh, we're making fabulous vintage looking, as well as all the other beautiful designs you do hats. Predominantly, again, recycled. Um, for some of your other materials, you go to a place called Trade. Yeah. Spelled T-R-A-I-D. That's right. Okay. A charity trade. And so tell us a little bit about charity trade, because that is fascinating. I didn't know about this, and I was trying to explain it to somebody the other day. They, they're brilliant for me, because I've always struggled with trying to find enough materials to do a collection out of um, consistently. And I think we are all getting much more aware about reusing resources as much as possible rather than buying new. And they encourage designers to contact them and use the stock that they can't sell in their shops. And where have they got their stock from? It's all charity donations. So what are the just huge skips of old clothes and do they separate them out into... Yeah, so it's fascinating. It's a massive warehouse up in Wembley in North London. And as you're there, you, you see these bags of donations coming in and you get a gentleman at the beginning who's taking all the bits out and separating them into clothing or homeware or toys or whatever. And then the clothes bit go on a little, what are they called? Those revolving... Conveyor belt? That's the word. Conveyor belt. <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> it goes on the conveyor belt. And then there's a team of about 10 people with rubber gloves on and masks. And they're picking out all the different clothes. They go yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. So the yeses go in these big cages and the noes go in the other sorts of cages. And then they have other cages, which are for people like me, who said, I want all your cashmere, or I want all your hats, or I want... So is there just one skip that's got cashmere in it? So, yeah, so oh. I've got this massive cage. And then it's a long process from asking, could you please source me loads of cashmere or whatever. Then usually it's about three months down the line, she'll email you. And you can't... You so no, so nobody, nobody can just wander in off the street and take a load of cashmere. No, cage. no, and you obviously pay for it, and that okay. goes back into the pot. So whatever cashmere I sell, the proportion has already gone to Ooh. trade, which is quite nice. It's a nice. And I had got very excited when you said cashmere, and then you showed me a bag of the cashmere, and it's stinking, <laughs> holy, filthy, disgusting. It's pretty rank. It's cashmere at its lowest Ooh. point. <laughs> but then you turn that into... And, and Chloe, also, I know that um, as gift ideas as well, apart from your your thriving business with hats, I know that you do more for pleasure. Uh, with some stuff that you get, you recycle, you, you make make some, some really lovely... I, I think I saw a hot water bottle the other day covered yeah. in cashmere. Yeah. yeah, and that came off the back of... Some offcuts from a, a few beanies I was making, or also yeah. very popular. Um, but you're battling against lots of other cashmere yeah, beanies yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah. And then I found this lovely little 500ml um, hot water bottle. I don't, I don't even know where I found it. <laughs> but I made it as a sort of test thing. 
and made it for my boys actually because our house is a bit chilly and they they really liked it and they liked the fact that they could have whatever color they wanted and on the front you've got an applique star or heart um, in off cuts of leather that I've got um, so you can make lots of different variations you could have the front one color and the back another color and I've purposely put my label on the outside as a sort of trademark luxury label type thing because it is a luxury item yeah and it's quite a nice it's quite a nice item to talk about as well you know and people people like picking them up they're quite tactile and they have been the biggest seller of any gift item I've ever made it's been amazing Having listened to your story, Chloe, it's it's fantastic that you know what started as a a small girl helping your you know your parents make mobiles to, to where you've got today, and also you know it's bringing it's bringing craft and possibly business into the community. Yes. So um, yes. it's it's a win win situation for everybody. So I would like to say first of all, Chloe Hayward, London, made in Britain. Made in Somerset, made ethically, and made in Draycott and Rodney Stoke. <laughs> it's going to be a big label. <laughs> it's going to be a very big label. And thank you so much for talking oh, to us today, Glenn. It's been a Glenn. pleasure, Tiggy. Thank you so much for having me. You've just been listening to Draycott Diaries, recorded by me, Tiggy Trothowan. The programme was edited by Jeff Farney. And the music was arranged by Hugh Trethowen. We are now available on all podcast platforms, so please keep listening. Mm-hmm.